Hey everyone, Mike Brazier here, your co-host of the Ducks Unlimited podcast. Just another quick reminder that the episode you're about to hear was recorded prior to the coronavirus becoming a part of our everyday lives. This was the this is part two of a three-part conversation with Jerry Holden, our director of operations for the Southern region. He shared a lot of great information with us. And although it was recorded prior to the coronavirus uh, coming about, we wanted to uh, nevertheless share this with you. There's a lot of good information here. Uh, so thanks again for listening, for all your support in these most challenging times. And uh, so here's your episode. Enjoy. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Thanks for joining us again today, folks. We uh, have another return guest on this episode, Jerry Holden, Director of Operations for the Southern Southern Region of Ducks Unlimited. And we're going to use this opportunity to, uh, as we've done with some of the other uh, regions, introduce our listeners to the Southern Region, have Jerry talk about some of the conservation priorities and conservation challenges in that region, and just have a, a, a ranging conversation about the Southern Region. Jerry, thanks for taking the time to join us here. Glad to be here. So we had you on previously sort of towards the end of the 2020 duck season to talk uh, about things in general and just uh, uh, sort of casual personal conversations. But, but now we want to shift just to, to talk more about DU's, uh, DU's business within the southern region. So a natural place to start is for you just to introduce our listeners if they happen to not catch that previous episode uh, to the southern region, the, the scale of that region, uh, and we'll just go from there. So the conservation enterprise for Ducks Unlimited in the United States is divided into four regions, and I run the south. That's 13 states. The western one is New Mexico, up across Oklahoma and to Virginia. So we have the southern part of the Chesapeake Bay and all the way down to the Gulf Coast, the South Atlantic Coast, Peninsular Florida. That's the southern region for Ducks Unlimited. This is a question that I've kind of wondered. Have you done any kind of comparison across the four regions? Like, which is the largest in area? Well, because the western region holds Alaska, uh, they, they hold the trump card. Um, but if you take Alaska out, yes. have you done that? Being a geographer, I figured you would have done that. You would think I would have done that. And we should probably do that. I would guess that because then we hold Texas, the south would be the biggest and then the West, but of course, the Great Lakes in the East has the most states. Yeah, but I was doing the math on that kind of leading up to all this. And I think, yeah, the Northeast, the Great Lakes area and Atlantic is probably going to have the number of states. So the, the people who framed that administrative structure were trying to make it about equal. And so the Southern region does have a couple of, of uh, really cool advantages. It has the Mississippi Alluvial Valley almost entirely within it. That's a really important wintering area, particularly for mallards. It has the Gulf Coast um, entirely within it. And that, because it's a terminus of two flyways, really can be important to waterfowl uh, in terms of their wintering needs as they store fat and form pair bonds so they can go back to the north. And then we also have, again, the southern part of the Chesapeake Bay, a, a really important historic waterfowl area and the entire eastern seaboard, which much of the um, history and lore of waterfowling 
really comes from places like Easton, Maryland and those, those places. And so, uh, as you would imagine, the Southern region is a complicated place when it, when you cover that much geography. And so there's a lot of, of versions of the South. Do you have a, a, a handle on the number of DU members that we have in, in the Southern region? I do not have that number in my head. Um, I know that one way to think about that is that we have some of the strongest fundraising states in Texas and Louisiana. Texas is perennially the number one state in absolute dollars in fundraising. It has a large and growing population, and it has a strong cohort and history of waterfowlers. What about staff? How many staff do we have across the southern region? So we have 63 full-time staff. Um, that's down 10 from the peak Um which was about the turn of the century. Um, but we have 23 part-time staff. Something fascinating has happened in the baby boomers. Uh, the demographics of our country are, are causing a lot of really qualified people to retire. And there's a big um, gl- glut of uh, intellectual and physical capacity. And so we, we can hire those folks as part-timers. We don't, it, it changes uh, how we pay them and uh, they're able to work all a cart. So we pay them X number of dollars an hour. They work some and they're off some because they want time to be with their grandkids or to tend to other things in their lives. But yet we can mine that capacity. And so what you've seen over the last 20 years is us having less full time staff and more part time staff. And a lot of these are people that come from conservation agencies, from state agencies or in many cases there are there are people that have worked as our partners in the past and that understand our work very well and that are able to come in and immediately start making a, a very strong contribution. Uh, I've, I've sort of noticed that and it's um, it's really neat to be able to take advantage of um, of what we're seeing um, in, within the employment field for sure. Of course, then that brings with it the challenges of, re- of replacing those individuals uh, out in those other agencies with qualified people. And so we've talked about Within our field, we've talked about that uh, a number of occasions. Federal agencies in particular and, and states as well have, have really struggled to be able to, uh, to, to maintain a headcount that they need to, to attend to what they need to. And one of the ways DE has been able to help is grab a retiree, hire that retiree and plug them right back into the same agency they came from where they have all that expertise um, to uh, unlock federal dollars, for example, to go to the ground to meet to meet our mission. For us, it's a really efficient way to um, maximize the thing that we're really after, which is a, a landscape more capable of supporting waterfowl. Jerry, you mentioned 63 employees, and is that just within the conservation uh, department? Is that yes. those 60? So that's going to consist of biologists, engineers, um, other project support staff, right? Yeah, that's right. It's the folks that within conservation. Um, so we do fundraising, uh, but we're not we're not fund we're not in the fundraising department. So those people would be principally be uh, civil engineers, uh, land surveyors, engineering techs, uh, biologists, um, ag- agronomist type. Uh, some communication specialists. And some communication. Like the the odd uh, waterfowl ecologist. Right. That, that are that are important for the overall conservation enterprise for Ducks Unlimited in the South. And that may be something that a lot of our members don't realize. In some cases, I felt like um, 
feel like we kind of work behind the scenes. Some of us, the engineers, surveyors, biologists work behind the scenes. And the people that are front and center with our members, with our volunteers, are, are folks within the uh, – there are regional directors in Louisiana, folks like uh, like Derek Davis. I probably know him best because of the time that I spent in, in Louisiana. Now, they're, uh, they're sort of within a different part of uh, – administratively within the organization, right? That's right. And it's a confusing title, right? So – Derek Davis has the yeah. title of regional director, <laughs> yet I'm the director of the region. Yeah. Uh, Derek Davis has Southwest uh, Louisiana as his responsibility, and it's confusing. But one of the things that's, I think, I think critical to understand is that it has long bothered me that the people that actually deliver Ducks Unlimited's mission are all but invisible. You you just touched on it. So there are there are engineers that that labor over designs and construction on projects, and there are biologists that sweat and toil over NACA grant deadlines, which one's pending now. Um, and they they basically never see glory for that. They never see any sort of recognition externally. Internally, I do everything I can to 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 show those folks how valuable they are. But it's just one of the things about Ducks Unlimited that you're correct. Those those folks work largely behind the scenes, largely gratified by the mission itself, as opposed to the recognition. The southern region is large, as you've talked about. And so anytime you're working across a large geography to be effective and efficient, you have to prioritize any time in life. Any kind of, we're we're prioritizing something, whether we realize it or not. And within the organization, we prioritize deliberately based on our understanding of a number of factors. Uh, what the birds need is just one of those factors, right? Where the important habitats are, um, where our supporters are, those types of things all factor into the equation of, of what are our priorities within the southern region. Uh, so within the southern region, talk about uh, some of those priority areas, and, and I'm, you know, I, I think about this because I know we have certain field offices scattered across the, the southern region, and that those the location of those field offices is closely tied to some of our area priorities. So just just talk about that. Introduce those areas for us. So we have a, a field office in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, one in Lafayette, Louisiana, uh, one in Rosenberg, Texas, just southwest of Houston, and one in Monroe, Louisiana, and north. Louisiana. And each of these offices is in one part or another of a priority landscape for the South. And they're there because the type of work we do, um, if we if our staff was centralized all in Jackson or Memphis, uh, it would be super cash inefficient to pr constantly project those people out into the field. And so we have in reasonable locations, these field offices where um, the priority landscape for waterfowl exists. And so um, it's a way of being efficient with our dollars uh, and and being better able to interface with our partners by being present with them in the, in those landscapes. But that doesn't mean that we don't work in some of these other states that are more distant from our, our regional or our field offices. New, right? Me New Mexico is my favorite example. So you can look at New Mexico, which for Ducks Unlimited is a supporting landscape, right? It has no level of priority. Yet, Within New Mexico, we have the Rio Grande and we have a wetland complexes associated with that that are, are clearly level one priorities for Ducks Unlimited because in that arid landscape, when you can put water into play, you're going to get bird response. And so no one, no one in the southern region, really in the United States, 
should feel disenfranchised by our priorities because we're able to work in every state in the southern region where there's priority waterfowl um, areas within a given land within a, within a state and um, it, it just takes it takes the right combination of of money and vision and the the magic mojo that makes a good project but we work uh, we work everywhere there's a project that benefits waterfowl and waterfowlers today in the southern region Related to this idea of priority areas, um, I guess it would be useful just to talk about some of the most important habitats for waterfowl. Um, You've touched on a couple of these, uh, I think, already. Uh, And then also the challenges associated with those. So one of my favorite places, I think it's one of your favorite places too, uh, the Gulf Coast. Just talk about that a little bit. And this is something that you and I could talk about for two hours because you and I work there so much. But just share with us some of the things that are that we're facing there and and our approaches to to help address those. So the the uh, the Gulf Coast, particularly the Western Gulf Coast of Louisiana and Texas, ha- frankly, it has more wetlands than almost everywhere else that are important to waterfowl. Um, and so when you take people there and you show it to them, sometimes they have this this perspective from the outside. We have so much. What's the problem? Well, the problem is rates of loss. Uh, we have rates of loss at, at uh, over two percent for the for the Gulf Coast and a year annual rates of loss of over two percent. And um, we've lost over a million acres of, of just the Louisiana portion of the Gulf Coast. And so it's the crisis that bring that galvanizes us to action. Ducks Unlimited didn't have a conservation program into in coastal Louisiana until 1999, when the the gentleman that was in my job at that time, Kim Babcock, asked the simple question, "Why aren't we there?" And no one had a good answer in the moment. And so we're there. Um, the reason we're there is because uh, the, that landscape, the Gulf Coast, is really important for wearing waterfowl. Uh, many species, so several of which spend more time there than they do on the prairies. And they have uh, biological needs, as you know better than I do, while they're there. And because the landscape is in such a state of decline due to sea level rise, subsidence, increased co- coastal erosion, um, the plight of waterfowl, I've argued many times, it's the greatest ecological crisis on the continent because of the threat, not because we have millions of acres left, but because of the rates. And we can't for we can't forecast a positive outcome here. It's still declining, even with significant investment in those landscapes. And that's that comes uh, that's despite significant investments from a host of conservation and restoration organizations uh, beyond Ducks Unlimited. As a conservation organization, the, the Gulf Coast is so intimidating because of the scale, the, not, not just the scale of the wetlands on that landscape, but the scale of the problems that are causing the loss of those wetlands. In, in the southeastern Louisiana, the story has been well told that one of the primary causes long term of the decline of those wetlands is the levying of the Mississippi River and the, the fact that that levy has prevented those sediment laden waters from filtering out into the marshes and, and maintaining those wetlands over time. That's a, that's a massive driver of that system. You can't fix that with a one or two million dollar restoration project. And and that's a challenge that that is stymieing all conservation organizations and, frankly, all elements of society and the land-based economies of, of southeastern Louisiana. And so it's really 
I, I found it really rewarding to watch Ducks Unlimited find a niche for what we can do within such within such a large landscape that is driven by such large scale problems. Um, we don't deliver 40, 50, 80 million dollar projects the way they some occur on the Gulf Coast. That doesn't mean the one or two or three million dollar projects that we deliver on the Gulf Coast are any less valuable. Somebody has to fill that niche and it's been really rewarding to see DU fill that. So I'm happy to tell you that we that we have evolved into the multi-tens of millions of dollars of projects, both in Texas and in Louisiana. But yet your central point is still true. And one of the problems that we've had is that people, once they learn of the scale of the problem and they and they learn of DU's responses, they say some version of, well, well you're irrelevant. Your response is not commensurate with the threat. And so I don't want to be on the losing team. And one of the things I would say to that is, we aren't on the losing team. We're doing everything we can do with every dollar we can find to to put this thing in into a, a state of more ecological stability while working on the big problems of sediment diversions, for example, and the problems that are even bigger than that, like sea level rise, where the the, the how you would compensate for sea level rise. It, it, it's complicated. And so Ducks Unlimited isn't, isn't irrelevant. Um, in fact, we're doing everything we can do, and we're doing that for waterfowl. They brought us to the table. But remember, there are significant societal benefits to, to doing that sort of work. People's livelihoods depend on a societal response here, their, their kids, their heritage, they're, they're, it, it is really, really complicated, but it's worth saving. And that's the message I'd like the audience to hear is when Ducks Unlimited faces a threat like drainage on the prairies or water issues out west or, or loss of coastal Louisiana, we don't have the luxury of quailing before that. Um, we have to step into that gap and find a way to motivate people to vote their conservation conscious. In- increasingly, I encourage people to spend your conservation conscious. Put your dollars where where it benefits organizations and companies and and for profit entities that that embody what you believe in. Vote, spend, donate, volunteer, get involved, because the penalties for not doing so are. They're real and they're more proximate than I'm comfortable admitting, right? They're real and they're right here in front of us. And so we can, we can pack up our toys and everybody move north of I-20 or, or we, can, we can get in the game. And I think, it, I think it's yet time for us to, to get in the game because we can point to a number of successes where at the local scale, think, think on the western end of Rockefeller Refuge in Cameron Parish, where we've been able to do enough over the last two decades to, to, to cause demonstrable bird response. And so we have, through the, the means that we're able to employ, the kind of projects that we're able to do, managing water, managing wind fetch, the things that we're able to do, we're able to make a difference. The problem is the difference isn't quite at scale yet, but we're working on it. Solving the crisis of the Gulf Coast, and I don't know that we can ever really solve the, the crisis of the Gulf Coast. Uh, we certainly can't bring it back to what it once was. It's a matter of trying to find 
what an appropriate or what an acceptable kind of future is for that landscape. You listen to the restoration ecologist of that uh, of that state, and they'll kind of tell you the same thing. We're not going to get back all the wetlands that we've lost over the years. The the losses have been too great, and the challenges are too great. And so, yes, we have to find solutions where we can, and some of them do occur at, at smaller scales. And the cumulative effects of those smaller scale efforts. Uh, Time and time again, they have been shown to uh, to be meaningful. And something that's right in your wheelhouse as a waterfowl ecologist who spend time thinking about the sort of calorie budgets of waterfowl is we we were able to identify uh, that we could do things to help rice producers in in the in the landscape, particularly in the Chenier Plain, Southeast Texas, Southwest Louisiana, and perhaps compensate to some degree for some of those losses in the marsh that were harder to deal with. Because the forces arrayed against us were were more terrifying, and so we could we could partner with producers in a way that benefited them. And while we did that, that benefited the birds. I want to move a bit north now into the Mississippi Alluvial Valley, and I, I know about the time I started with Ducks Unlimited fifteen years ago, that was one of the um, that was one of the areas where our activities were um, were most. But rapid. We were doing a lot of work back in that, uh, I think coming out of the 80s into the 90s associated with the wetland reserve program and some of that. Um, talk about some of the work that we're doing now uh, in the Mississippi Alluvial Valley. You can even speak to the way those um, those programs have changed over the years and the, the um, just where we are now. It's a fascinating reality that sometimes old things are new again. So the Mississippi Alluvial Valley is a very important landscape for waterfowl, uh, particularly mallards. And Ducks Unlimited's programs today are focused on protection. Much of it is focused on protection of remnant forests. That landscape was once about 25 million acres of forest that would flood with the Mississippi River. In the, around 1930, uh, we levied the Mississippi River, severely impaired the hydrology, roughly coincident in time. We cut all the trees down for durable wood products and others, and sometimes we cut them down so we could grow soybeans, and so we changed that landscape. It actually made it probably more, you have more diverse uh, waterfowl species there now than you might have had historically, but the habitats are dramatically changed, and so Ducks Unlimited moved to protecting the the remnant flood forest that flood, and we built these really cool models using satellite data and others other data in order to help us inform just which of these were the most attractive, which tracts of forest were the most contiguous with other uh, larger tracts and flooded frequently and had good duration of those floods. And, and so we do a lot of that. We do a lot of public land work uh, today in Arkansas. Um, the, the state of Arkansas is, is, has very boldly stepped forth and said, we, are, we haven't been treating our green tree reservoir, reservoirs right We've flooded them too early. We've held the water too long, and and that's caused change in tree species, which are not beneficial to waterfowl or waterfowlers. And so it's complicated, and there's lots of details, but they've had to resolve to do the right thing for the resource, the right thing for their waterfowlers, even though it maybe doesn't feel like that in the moment for an individual waterfowler. It's still the right thing to do for waterfowlers and waterfowl and for the state of Arkansas, and we're happy to help. Yeah, and there will be some growing pains uh, with that. and. Uh, something that we will reference often, uh, 
several things that we'll reference often as we go throughout the life of this podcast. Scale is one of those. And that's not only spatial scale, that's temporal scale. And and the temporal scale over which you measure your successes or your rewards and what you cited about the Green Tree Reservoirs and the challenges they're facing, uh, recognizing that the management of the past has not been the most appropriate for the health of those forests. And, and it's going to take it's going to take many years to get back to a healthy state. And so there will be some pains in that process. And so you just have to keep that appropriate perspective 10, 20 years into the future. And and we've, I've talked with Luke Naylor about that and we'll probably have him on to talk about that in more detail. But seeing it firsthand, hearing them describe the signs of a, de- of a forest and declining health and then going through the flooded uh, flooded timber and seeing those signs with your own eyes is really – uh, it's awakening, and and yeah, I mean, I hope it moves. It certainly has moved the agency to uh, to, to take those steps, and I certainly hope the hunters of that state and surrounding states uh, can realize the importance of doing that. Waterfowl hunting is a, a pretty large economic driver in some places. Uh, one of those places is Arkansas, and it's the, it's really the only way to ensure that. that continues is to take care of the the infrastructure and the and the ecology that supports those wintering waterfowl one of the other issues is managing pressure so the paradox of of our profession is we're constantly told that hunter numbers are declining yet you can't go public hunting in the south and not know that there's a lot of pressure right well that seems a bit like a paradox to me and so ducks unlimited uh, works with state and federal partners to try to maximize the quality and quantity of public hunting opportunity. That's the other thing that I didn't get to speaking about the the lower Mississippi Valley. That's probably the linchpin of our program there is trying to give everybody that we can the opportunity to get the, the best public land waterfowling opportunity that they can. And you get state, state, uh, governor change, the uh, state agency heads change, and there's different focus on that. But what's eternal is there's there are waterfowlers and they want to have the best public land hunting experience they can. And we don't own those lands. Ducks Unlimited doesn't, but we are a valued partner. We try real hard to be a valued partner for those states as they seek to enhance and sometimes acquire. We did that uh, white property acquisition in southeast Louisiana. I've forgotten now 1,600 acres of new public hunting for the state. That's a great thing. We have an opportunity to do that. We're doing that today in Oklahoma in smaller tracks, but continuing to help a state agency with its vision for waterfowl management excellence. Jerry, maybe as an example for our, our listeners, what are what's the nature of a conservation, of a typical conservation project or restoration project, let's just say in Arkansas, associated with the Green Tree Reservoir Um Restoration that we talked about. Yeah, so those are a little atypical um, because of the scale of them. You, you, they have to be replumbed to allow the state to to make choices about leaving one dry for a year for the health of the trees and for regeneration, all that sort of stuff. And so we have to survey so we know exactly what water does and not make any guesses. That'll bite you every time. We have to survey a lot and we have to replumb those um in a way that that gives the state health uh, management over the health of those forests. And that's, that's really important. A typical project for us 
is working with the state in order to provide water management capabilities so that their their managers who are experts can more easily and effectively manage for high quality waterfowl habitat typically it's more soil habitat uh, um, that means folks uh, plants that that grow in, in moist soils that ducks have evolved to uh, prefer and benefit from and uh, sometimes it's it's crop benefits but it's often moist soil and uh, and so what we want to do is just maximize the ability for the state to provide quality habitat and as much of it as we can so that the the hunting pressure is therefore distributed by however the state chooses to do that so that, that ducks enjoy it and waterfowlers do too. Let's move quickly to the South Atlantic, one of the other regions where we do a lot of work. Uh, we could come back to each of these at some point if we wanted to and spend um, another hour, you know, talking about specific examples of programs. And that's probably something or projects, and that's probably something worth doing uh, at some time. But let's move to the South Atlantic. I know that's an area where we we do a lot of work on the land protection side of things, mostly in the form of conservation easements, I think. But tell us a little bit about the work that we do there. As with every landscape that we deal with, the South Atlantic really can't be painted with one one brush. But in the uh, low country of South Carolina, in North Carolina, in Virginia, we do do a lot of land protection. Part of that is because we always have our land protection programs are always aligned against a threat. And the threat there is people keep moving to the coast and they cut down the trees and they build subdivisions. And that's not good for waterfowl habitat. Uh, and they build marinas and right. And so in the South Atlantic, land protection is a big part of what we do because those landscapes are important. And it's far easier to protect the capacity of a landscape to carry waterfowl than it is to restore that landscape's ability to do that. And so folks that came along before you or I were visionary enough to decide that this was worth saving. And so we we do that. The other thing we do in that landscape a lot of is, again, public hunting, public opportunity, public uh, bird watching. We don't get any credit for that, but we deliver it. Um, giving people an opportunity to recreate. Um, most people don't own uh, plantations, ranches, or farms—they have—they go to the public public land in order to to connect with nature in a way that we that's demonstrably beneficial for them. And so uh, that's the other thing we do on those landscapes is partner with our state and federal agencies to a great degree. I wasn't aware of this until I really started looking into it. Is that the land protection that you reference in the South Atlantic? Like so, number one—that's one of the few areas within the non-breeding landscapes where land protection is a big part of our portfolio. The other thing is that that was that initiative. Um, what is this? The Ace Basin. Um, Jamie Rader was on an earlier episode and was talking to us about this and that how that, that effort for large scale land protection in such a um, sort of a common area was started by, as you talked about, some visionaries. And Ducks Unlimited was brought into that kind of along the way to be a, a key partner in helping um, as part of that partnership. So that's a pretty neat arrangement or a pretty neat example of sort of a grassroots effort from a lot of the local uh, local people from a, from a given area really um, starting a conservation movement. For me, because the – the low country of South Carolina and the Texas mid coast are in my, the region. You see both of these places are beset by population growth. One responded with a protection model in time 
The other has not. And so the Katy Prairie, which was a historically important waterfowl area, and people that are well alive today can talk about their childhoods, even their young adulthoods hunting waterfowl in the Katy Prairie west of Houston, can no longer do that because there's subdivisions, swimming pools, and quickie marts in that space. And and so it really does, in my mind, it, uh, really show you the benefit of a protection program. Uh, when you sense the threat, it's time to move, not 20 years later. That's right. That's right. This is probably a good place to wrap this episode up. We've talked about some of the important regions. We've we went about important uh, priority areas within the southern region. We've hopefully given folks an idea of the, the vastness of this landscape, the important waterfowl habitats, and some of the challenges that we're facing. But we still have some ground to cover uh, in this conversation. We want to talk about some of our uh, some of our supports uh, that we're that we're getting the diversification of our support to fund the conservation work. I also want to get your thoughts on um, just some rewarding stories of working for the organization uh, and a few other things. So we'll wrap this one up and then we'll have you back on another episode, Jerry. Thanks for joining us. I was happy to be here. Special thanks to our guest today, Jerry Holden, Director of Operations for Ducks Unlimited Southern Region. And we appreciate him joining us for the second part of this conversation. Uh, talked about a range of topics and we still have more topics to cover. We thank our producer, Clay Baird, the Electron Warrior, for all the great work that he does in editing the podcast and getting these out to you in quick fashion. And as always, the listeners, the most important part of this effort, we thank you for your time. We thank you for spending with us and most importantly, We thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. 